0: One of my clients in LA, he had a judgment entered against him in February for $1.7 million. Now, this individual had made a sizable investment with me to create quite an elaborate structure several years ago, and he was really nervous. He said, what, what's going to happen? I said, you're going to go into the debtor's exam, and you're going to tell him what you have. So he went into this debtor's exam, and they started questioning him, and he had to then reveal everything that he had. And they all of a sudden just paused. And they turned off the camera, they turned off the recorders, they conferred with themselves. And they said, all right, we understand you've got an elaborate structure here. So how about $500,000? Would you be willing to settle this? So they already dropped at 1.2 million. I talked to my client, he goes, what should I do? And I said, that's just the opening number. We can get it lower. And he did get it lower. That's the power of having this type of structure behind
1: you to back it up. This is the We Love Real Estate Podcast. My name is Sean and I love real estate. In this weekly podcast, we interview the top real estate investors and professionals who share their knowledge and expertise to help you become a real estate investment boss. So if you love real estate and want to level up your investment game, then you've come to the right place. And now, on to the show. What's going on, investors, and welcome to episode 274 of the We Love Real Estate podcast with Sean Pan. In today's episode, we have Clint Coons. Clint is one of the founders of Anderson Business Advisors, a firm that specializes in creating asset protection entities for real estate investors. In this episode, Clint will tell us why it's important for real estate investors to hold their properties in different entities and why insurance may not be enough to cover you. If you want to learn more about asset protection strategies, you definitely need to listen to this episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week. All right, Clint, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Go ahead, introduce yourself, and let us know what you do and tell us who you are.
0: Hey Sean, thanks for having me on. My name is Clint Coons. As you introduced me, I'm with Anderson Business Advisors. I'm an attorney and I'm also a real estate investor. I have, uh, I don't know, now well over 300 properties, probably even closer to over four. But I invest all over the country, predominantly in the Winston-Salem market. And my investing, my asset classes, it's very diverse. I've got single families, which is comprised of a lot of it, multifamily, commercial, mobile home parks. I mean, it's up to the point now where you kind of start losing track of, where the progress is inside of your portfolio. But our firm itself, we work with real estate investors all over the country and we help them on a tax and asset protection side. And I started the firm with my partner, Toby Mathis, back in 99. And we've grown it from just a, a small practice with about 20 employees after a year of being in business to now having an office in a few different states with close to 500 employees. And it's just you know tax and legal. And it really resonates with real estate investors because they struggle to find professionals that understand what they do because most of the professionals they go to are not investors. And so that's what really separates Anderson from other people in our space is that myself, our staff, partner, we're we're avid real estate investors. So we bring a different perspective to what people do.
1: Yeah, and I'm super excited to have you on our show because I actually attended, I think, your live event that you had in the Bay Area. And I think it was around 2019 where you spoke for that three-day event. Yeah, it was a while ago. And it was a lot of information, right? Three days worth of information about why you should be creating an LLC. But for those of our listeners who don't have the time to sit through a three-day masterclass, can you give us some you know, introductions on why a real estate investor would need to set up these asset protection strategies?
0: Yeah, you know, it really comes down to the fact that when you're investing, look at entities. If you set them up the right way, they're going to help you do more. you set them up the wrong way, they're going to be an impediment to your growth. And, you know, people think of liability, right? Protection. They think, I'm going to get sued if I invest in real estate. And I got to get out there and protect myself. Well, I'll tell people, hey, listen, the likelihood of being sued is pretty small. I've never been sued. I've had trees fall through a house. I've had two houses burned down in the last year, and I didn't get sued. But I appreciate that when you own rental real estate, it comes with risk. And it only takes one mistake. You know, it's not even have to be your fault and it can wipe you out. And I've seen so many individuals over the past 22 years when, as you know, like the event you're talking about, that I'd take a break and people would rush me on the break to tell me their life story of how they had 10, 20, 30 properties and one unfortunate incident wiped them out. And here they are starting over at 62 years of age. And you don't want to be that person. So I tell people, set up entities and make sure that you're isolating your assets so you're minimizing your overall risk exposure. And yes, that means one LLC per property for probably the first 15 Team properties you buy. And look at why you're buying. You're buying for cash flow many times. So don't think about the equity. And that's the mistake that I used to make. And I tell people, oh, focus on equity. Really, you should focus on cash flow because you want to preserve all those cash flow streams that are coming down to you. Because as you acquire more, you're going to change your, your lifestyle. You're going to plan on that income to you know, maybe pass it on to your kids and create generational wealth. And you want to be in a position that, if, like I said, if a mistake does occur, that you haven't jeopardized all that. And so using entities the right way can ensure that. And And the other aspect of using LLCs is that when you set them up from a tax perspective to flow down onto your return in a specific manner. And that's one of the things we teach is that, you know, when you set up your LLCs, you can choose, you want them to tax as a C Corp, S Corp, disregarded entity, or partnership? If you set them up the right way, you actually can look better to underwriters when you go in to get a loan. And a lot of people are like, no, that's not true. How's a, an entity going to help you look better? It's because if you control how the entity treats you from a tax perspective, you'll control where that income hits your 1040. And if you're using senior debt to acquire your loans, you know, which a lot of people typically go the senior debt route because they're looking for those lower interest rates, you have to make sure your return, are Freddie, Fannie optimized, because those are the underwriting standards they're gonna use. And that's our approach at Anderson. We're saying, all right, we're gonna use entities, but not only we help protect yourselves, we're gonna ensure that they can help you do more on the financing side, so you can go out there and continue to leverage.
1: Even as a hard money lender, we sometimes require our clients to have entities to buy properties in some states like Florida and Texas. And I believe it's because of their homestead laws, like they're very friendly towards people who do own their properties. So by owning the property in a business, we know that if something happens, we can foreclose on it. So I mean, I guess that's another reason to have an entity in the first place. I'd never thought about that angle.
0: In fact, I'm going to write that one down, Florida and Texas, because of the homestead laws. I was dealing with a client just last week, and we'd created a structure for him a few years back. He's a small business owner, real estate investments. And when I say a few years, you know, my age, 15 is a few years, and he got sued and there was a judgment entered against him for $500,000 and it's still been floating around out there and he hasn't been paying out on it. Why? Because we created a structure that prevented his personal creditor from coming after him and grabbing on to the income generated from his investments, disrupting his business, disrupting those investments. And he sent me the charging order that the court awarded his creditor and you know, just, it's just great to have. I'm going to use it as an exhibit to show people who attend our events now, hey, it does work. When you set this stuff up the right way, you will preserve your assets.
1: I know you mentioned that a lot during the three-day course, but can you again, I guess, reiterate, there's kind of like a whole point where you get a property under an LLC and like even if you lose a lawsuit, they still have to create a charging order, which means that if to pay it or something like that, I'll let you explain and kind of go over how the whole thing works.
0: Yeah. So with investing, there's two types of liability. They're what we call inside liability. And that's what happens inside of the box, the LLC that you create. And then there's outside liability. That's the liability that occurs on the outside where you're going to be sued. People say, well, why am I going to be sued for my real estate? Well, there's lots of reasons why. If you were a hands-on landlord, I know you don't teach that. You teach remote investing. I'm a remote investor myself. But if you were, then you can have liability for any of the work that you do. But it's more than that. I mean, if you're assigned on personal leases, if you have a loan default and you get sued for in a car accident, my responsibility Exceptionist was just in a car accident a couple of weeks ago so those are all instances in which you generate personal liability for yourself so by having that LLC in place what it's going to do is ensure that if something goes wrong with the property such as the example I provided where it burned down you're not liable for that your insurance is going to cover you the equity in the property is going to take care of the rest you're not going to get touched in either of your other properties now if you get sued personally Then what happens is that they can't reach into the LLC. Now, this assumes you've set the LLCs up correctly in the right states and you understand the operating agreements and how they work because there's a really interesting case I've been talking about recently out of Utah where a guy set up a Nevada LLC, thought his assets were protected, creditor, he thought wasn't going to be able to get the $10 million he held inside of there, but he completely botched it because he didn't understand how to use the LLC like my client is in the example I just provided to you or that charging order comes into effect and it just stays there, meaning this. You have an LLC that generates $50,000 in rental income this year your creditor won't be able to get a dime of that. You'll keep it right in your LLC. You can go out and buy more property. It won't affect your life. If you need the money, you can loan the money out to yourself. As long as you don't take a distribution, creditors don't get paid. And it's one of the reasons why most creditors don't go to the extent that this creditor did and actually obtain a charging order because they realize the futility in actually going and taking that course of action. So. LLCs are great defense. In fact, they can be an offensive tool as well. From the standpoint, you just let creditors know. For example, one of my clients in LA, he had a judgment entered against him in February for $1.7 million. Personal judgment. Now, this individual had made a sizable investment with me to create quite an elaborate structure several years ago. And he was really nervous. He said, what, what's going to happen? I said, you're going to go into the debtor's exam and you're going to tell them what you have because they didn't know what he had because the way you can set up an llc if you set it up correctly with anonymity so if somebody runs your name what we call an asset search they don't even know you have this stuff they won't know you have their properties they won't know you have the structure set up so he went into this debtor's exam and they started questioning him and he had to then reveal everything that he had and they all of a sudden just paused which is something like a deposition and they turned off the camera they turned off the recorders they conferred with themselves and they said all right we understand you've got an elaborate structure here so how about five hundred thousand dollars would you be willing to settle this so they already dropped at 1.2 million i talked to my client he goes what should i do and i said that's just the opening number we can get it lower and he did get it lower that's the power of having this type of structure behind you to back it up because if you don't they'll just put Leans on all your properties and they'll wait for you to sell, or maybe you refi their property and that's when they'll get paid. So that's why, if you're investing in real estate, you're a small business owner, you have assets you want to protect, life comes at you fast, and you don't have the opportunity after that lawsuit strikes or you think you're about to be sued to engage in any type of this planning.
1: So, because your clients already had this set up, the structure set up correctly, the other party's lawyers realized that they basically couldn't get any money from your client and they lowered their ask. What was the mistake that the other person did where they had like $10 million in LC that I guess get pierced by these uh, yeah, lawyers? He's just
0: an arrogant individual is what it sounds like for me in the court case. But here's what he did. He has this money inside of there and a judgment's entered against him for 4 or $5 million. I forget the exact amount, but it was up there. And he said, you can't put a charging order on my LLC because I don't own the interest anymore. I gave it to my wife, ha ha, this has to go away. And so the plaintiff asked to see a copy of his operating agreement. He sent that over. Then they asked to see a copy of the assignment because he said that he assigned his interest. He transferred his interest to his wife. So he looked at this assignment form that he used to transfer his interest to his wife. They looked at his operating agreement and they said, you know what, Your operating agreement states you have to go through four steps in order to effectively transfer your interest. We're looking at this transfer form that we call an assignment, and you only covered step one and step two. Therefore, you still own it, and our charging order still sticks. And then they looked at his operating agreement, and they said, you know, you disclose that your wife has been receiving money every year. Well, you have deemed distributions now that we're entitled to. He said, well, I never took a dime out. It all went to my wife. And they said, yeah, but you see this language in your operating agreements that indicates that all distributions shall be pro rata, which means equal. You're entitled to $4 million. Therefore, that's our money. And then they got into the LLC and they were able to break it. That turned on a couple of things. Number one, not knowing what's in an operating agreement in order to transfer that interest. And so he committed an error there. But number two, the language itself. When you set up LLCs, A three letter word, N-O-N, should have been inserted in front of that pro rata distribution language. And so I tell people, LLC operating agreements, the words they contain matter. And I know you're never going to appreciate this. You won't understand it until you're involved in that lawsuit and the attorneys on the other side looking to get into your LLC, looking to take your assets, will start pointing out every flaw they can find. And so many real estate investors, you see them taking operating agreements they can download off the internet they go to legal zoom and pull an operating agreement from them pay them 50 bucks All i would say is this you know it's like think about buying real estate you get what you pay for you know if you want to buy junk then that's what you're going to have expect to put a lot back into it if you if you're going to do that with your llc and your legal well it's probably not going to give you the protection you're looking for so that's how i would leave that
1: and what would you say i guess for a lot of people who don't have entities like i just went through this whole process so i understand it pretty well but a lot of people don't really understand what goes into an llc so like what are the main documents that you get when you create an entity like this
0: well first off let's talk about that assumption that you're making that it's an llc one thing i tell people investor clients that we work with i don't know what you need until i know where you live and where you invest And so, for example, if you live in California and you're investing all over the United States, well, I need to know which state you're investing in because there are different structures that we'll utilize in different jurisdictions. And why we're doing that is because we want to make sure that you're not going to get dinged in California on every LLC you create at 800 bucks a pop. But in addition to that, I want to ensure that when we transfer your real estate into that business entity that you're not going to incur a transfer tax or it's not gonna result in a reassessment. And so that implies many times that we have to look at alternative structures such as a land trust potentially, or a series LLC with cells. And so we wanna make sure that, or even a Wyoming statutory trust. So we wanna optimize the structure for the client to set it up in a way that will preserve all of the tax benefits they currently receive from their investing and then enhance it by putting it in a structure that will make them look better to lenders and also avoid any unnecessary reassessments or transfer taxes. So too many investors think it's a one-size-fits-all approach, and it's not. I had a client in Florida, his CPA set him up in a structure with LLCs for Tennessee investment. When he came to start working with us, I looked at his tax return, said, man, you're paying 45 grand to Tennessee? You're getting hosed. He said, yeah, but that's just the cost of doing business there. So that's from your CPA's perspective because your CPA doesn't understand how the fonts exemption works in Tennessee. And if you let me work with you here, I will eliminate that for you. All we have to do is change your structure and the way it's set up and the way the ownership interest is held. And that's a $45,000 annual savings to you. Those are the types of mistakes that people end up making when they're not aware of what that particular jurisdiction requires in order to minimize those costs. So that's what we look at when we're working with an investor is ensuring that these, all these little points are being addressed.
1: Yeah, so I guess going to that point, because I was a California investor, I recently moved to Texas, but I was a California investor and I do plan to move back to California in a few years. Uh, Because of that, when we set up our structures, we didn't wanna create all these LLCs because of what you said, paying $800 a year in these like state taxes, right? Yep, state fees, franchise fee. Exactly, franchise fees. So we ended up doing the whole Wyoming statutory trust. Can you briefly go over the difference between an LLC and a WST? Yeah, a
0: Wyoming statutory trust is similar to an LLC. It's a business entity, it's recorded with the state. It can provide you anonymity as well. And it offers asset protection, unlike your living trust or a land trust, with the exception of Florida. If you own property in those other types of trusts and that property is the impetus of the lawsuit, you're personally liable for whatever happens inside of your trust. With a statutory trust, it's a different beast because it's recorded with the Secretary of State. It's a creature of statute, not a creature of common law like you have with land trusts and and living trusts. So you have protections there. And if you're a California resident, one of the impediments to putting together a great asset protection structure for many investors is that they realize, hey, if I'm gonna set up a series LLC in Texas to hold 12 investment properties I have down there, each of them in a separate cell, California is going to come along and say well wait a minute you have 13 entities parent LLC plus 12 cells therefore we're going to collect $800 per cell and on the parent entity and all of a sudden you start looking at it thinking wow this is just killing me on the profit side. I'll put, I don't know, all 12 properties into one LLC or I'll break them up into two. And so then you're now you're having to sacrifice on your protection because the squeeze California's putting on you. So what do you do then? You find an alternative structure that California will not tax. And one of those uh, structures is a Wyoming statutory trust. So what we typically will do then in that scenario is set up a Wyoming statutory trust of which our client owns it and they control it. And then we'll have the trust own the LLC in Texas, the series LLC with all the cells. Now you're not holding the interest, it's not subject to that $800 franchise tax. And so this is what I was talking about, it's not a one size fits all, understanding where the problems are and then finding unique solutions to those problems that affect those clients that live or invest in a particular
1: jurisdiction. So just going back to it, why wouldn't everyone just get a WST in case they wanna move to California someday in the future?
0: Well, the reason I wouldn't necessarily put together a WST in in every instance is because the LLC has greater acceptance. And so when you're using the LLC to close on a piece of property, you're dealing with title or you're dealing with yourself, hard money lender, you're presented with this unique form that's a case for you, a first impression. You've never seen one before. It could slow down the process. So... When I look at putting a structure together for someone, I'm telling them, hey, here's what we got to do. We want to make sure that you can meet, you can close uh, by X date. You tell me what your closing date is. We got to create a structure that's going to help you get to that date and not have to ask for an extension and screw everything up for yourself. So, yeah, we could start with the WST, but if that lender's not familiar with it, they're going to run it by their legal counsel, and it's just going to snowball on us. And I'm going to have to explain it because you can't explain it to them. So it's better that we give them something they're familiar with, something they know. But we still get the same protection. We can still avoid the franchise fees associated with that structure. So if you're going to move back to California, what I would tell you to do at that point in time, set up a statutory trust, take your, all your LLCs, stick it in the statutory trust, and then you're taken care of. So if everything's set up the right way, you should be always be able to move it. I remember there was a client in California, we're doing four deals, four commercial properties. So I set up four statutory trusts for each of these four deals. And I asked him, I said, who's financing this deal for you? And he said, Chase Bank. I said, okay, great. So I know what's gonna happen. They're gonna see this and they're not gonna understand it. So I'm gonna have to be on the phone with you as you talk to your broker there, your representative at Chase Bank, because you're never gonna talk to the underwriter. So I got on the phone with Chase Bank and they told me they've never heard of a statutory Wyoming statutory trust before. They don't understand them. They haven't been presented. And this was going to be an impediment to getting the loan done because they've never worked with statutory trust. So that's interesting because I, I was prepared for this. I said, I've got five of them right here. Delaware statutory trust that you're the lender on inside of California. Would you like me to send you the docs? Because you're telling us you've never done this before. And obviously Chase knows what it's doing. You need to talk to somebody who understands this. And so, you know, sidebar, they went off, came back a couple days later. I said, oh yeah, we can do it. And so that's that education process, you know, when you're using an entity that doesn't have as much brand appeal as the llc you have to be sensitive to the client's needs to get the deal done
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense like again as a lender i've encountered a situation where one of our clients was using a c-corp but he only had one percent ownership into it and the company itself had 99 percent ownership into it again i think it's because of legal reasons i'm not entirely sure but when we saw that we said technically you're not the majority owner or are you again it slowed down the process like crazy yeah. So I guess yeah, you're right. Making a structure that is known for other lenders will make it easier to streamline, especially if you're in this, you know, fast timeline.
0: That's why I tell people there's, when it comes to using entities, if you're a real estate investor, obviously the asset protection is important. Tax planning is important, but you can't let tax planning, the tail that wags the dog. I mean, that's just, I see so many people make that mistake. I want to eliminate all my taxes down to zero. Great. Sounds noble. And then, you know, you want to do that, but understand that certain tax deductions aren't going to help you get deals done. And so you have to be careful how you approach that. And then there's that business planning leg of the stool that, is we're just discussing now i think is the side that gets missed and that people don't understand that when you're going to grow you have to work with lenders unless you just have gobs of cash that you've inherited or built up through your business and so when working with those lenders your plan needs to be optimized you need to be creating structures that is going to help you get the deal done and is not as i stated earlier going to be that impediment to why you couldn't meet your closing deadline, why you got to give up more earnest money in order to keep the deal open, and hopefully, if it, you waive your financing contingency, then it falls out, then you lose your earnest money and possibly get sued because the property value has gone down. So those are the things that we're looking at.
1: So another question I had was in terms of transferring properties. So you know, like in California, we have Prop 13, which keeps our property taxes very like low relative to how much it appreciates. But if you were to sell the property later down the line, or you know, gift it to an heir, different things happen and your property taxes get reassessed. What would happen in the case if you put it into an LLC and then transfer the ownership of the LLC to someone else? Technically
0: speaking, what would happen is that you would have to report that as a change in ownership. And that's a common mistake that people make when it comes to limited liability companies is that they think, well, I'll just put it inside an LLC and I'll transfer that interest to someone else and then I'll avoid any transfer taxes on the deal. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, you have to report that. Whenever there's a change in ownership, and it depends on the state, is it 50% or or 30% change in, in ownership? That's gotta be reported on some form. And in, in California, have the PCOR form, preliminary change of ownership report. And on that preliminary change of ownership report, it doesn't speak just in terms of who the property owners is, it's talking about beneficial interest. So if it's held indirectly through another entity, you get dinged that way.
1: You know, another thing that real estate investors love to have is the step-up in basis when they pass away. So if the property is in an LLC, and you pass away. Does that step up in basis occur when your heirs inherit Absolutely,
0: it occurs when your heirs inherit the LLC. They're going to get a step up in basis inside of the LLC and the asset itself. And then, you know, in California, I recently dealt with this with an LLC that held significant home client of mine that was the beneficiary of the trust. LLC passed through. There was no reassessment. It all went down to them because it was exempt on that transfer. This was before the new Prop 19.
1: Would that be the same for like a WST or even S-Corp if you held properties that All way? All the
0: same. Wonderful.
1: I talked to several different people. Some people create LLCs for asset protection. Some create LLCs for tax planning. Some say, what's the point of LLC? Just get a big umbrella policy. What are your thoughts on those three things?
0: You trust insurance companies to protect you when the time is right and you have the need. Most insurance companies, you know, they're in the business of making money off premiums and not on paying out on policies. And so you still need insurance. There's no doubt about that. You still have to buy insurance. But I look at it from the standpoint as, A, how much insurance can you buy? B, what is it going to cost you? C, is your provider going to provide you the right type of insurance? Because a lot of the claims brought against real estate investors aren't even covered by insurance. For example, Say you have a rental property, it's a toxic mold case. You know, they recognize there's mold in the property. You're not covered. That's an environmental contamination. Maybe you're going to go buy a piece of property and you're in negotiations with the seller. You got the property under contract. You get one or two extensions. You walk away. You look at the market right now. Why did you walk away? Well, because you think the value's gone down and you don't want to close on that property. You've got $5,000 in earnest money riding on the deal and you're just willing to walk away from that 5K. Well, unless you can find some other reason to get out of the contract, that doesn't prohibit a seller from suing you because you tied that property up and your earnest money is not the only damage available to a seller. And I've had several clients figure this out the hard way. Their insurance didn't protect them. Or that long-term lease that they had that they had signed on to given a personal guarantee and then they walk away from that lease because it's just not economically viable or a loan agreement that their personal guarantor on. All of those types of scenarios that come up outside of insurance. Are pretty common. Most of the cases that I hear or situations that I run into where people have been involved in lawsuits, they're not covered by their policies. I mean, granted, the slip and fall. I mean, I've actually had a client with a dog bite case where a tenant's dog, Rottweiler, chained up in the backyard, bit the neighbor when the neighbor came in the backyard to rescue her little dog that had climbed under the fence and was getting mauled by the Rottweiler. She gets sued. And the insurance states, well, that's one of the special breeds that it's a dangerous animal and you're not covered. You shouldn't have rented to someone with a Rottweiler. I didn't know they had a Rottweiler and rented to them. Well, too bad. So insurance has its place, but it shouldn't be your only method of protecting yourself. Otherwise, you may be in it, find yourself in a situation where, hey, you're staring down the double barrels and you've got no protection.
1: Yeah, there's also these companies out there like these firms who help other people sue and you know they're the kind of firms that don't get paid unless they win so they just they're pretty aggressive at just sending out letters to people and actually i encountered one of these oh you did it is it's is a very interesting story so i bought this property maybe five years ago and it was not in the best condition so we did renovations on it and for five years it was cash flowing just fine but in february of this year before I had all my entities set up unfortunately i got a letter in the mail saying that this person got injured on my property and after finding out what happened apparently my tenants friend or whatever came by to visit and on their way out their foot fell through the porch so i'm thinking like how did that happen but you know and maybe the wood wasn't as strong as it should have been and their foot fell through the porch you know we took photos and whatnot and it didn't seem like there was that much damage but now there is something right there's a letter being sent to me
0: that was in january it was in january yeah i've used your letter
1: oh did you see that letter? I did. Yeah. I so in any it. case, I think at this point, thank God I have insurance because they're covering it. But let's say I had my entity set up in place already. What would be, I guess, my defense against a letter like this that just comes out of the blue?
0: Nothing. They can sue the LLC, but here's the difference. When you had that letter hit you, you have other assets that are in your name. So then it's a wake-up call, it concerns you. Because if it goes beyond your policy limits, or if your policy didn't cover you, now you're an open book. You know, anything that you own personally, they can come after. But if you had structures around your entities, right, and they send you this shakedown letter and you're concerned, it lessens your overall liability exposure and you're concerned because you realize, hey, yeah, this one property now, the equity in that property is 30 grand. The most I'm gonna hit, take a hit on is the income and of course the equity in that property. If everything goes against me and the insurance doesn't work out or goes beyond policy limits. But when everything's in your own name, it changes the dynamic and it gives the power to the plaintiff because the plaintiff knows that they can apply pressure to you because you have a high risk of loss. And so why not be more aggressive in the pursuit of that action against someone because it comes down to this, lose them all or give us three out of 10. We'll call it a day. You're like, oh, I don't want to lose them all. I'll give you three out of 10. Whereas if there's only one property and that's all they can recover against, you can sit back and say, dude, you're just background noise at this point in time. If you're going to take my policy limits, do what you want to do. And the other argument you can make here is this. Hey, if you want to fight this and come after me, I'm fully protected. We can play this dance, but understand that with my policy, it has 30,000 allocated to legal defense. Anything beyond that goes against the policy itself. So, if my policy limits for five hundred thousand dollars on this deal, then we're going to start spending that down, fighting with you. So, you can negotiate that way and say, "Hey, let's settle this now." Because if you wait two years, there ain't going to be five hundred thousand dollars there. Because the way my attorneys bill me, they will be two fifty. Because they'll have be eaten into that policy to such a degree that you're not going to get the potential recovery you could get today if you settle. But if you have all your assets in your own name. I don't have to take that deal. I have no incentive to. I'm like, well, you've got that house worth a mill, and that one over there that's worth $300,000. And I know you got a big savings account in your own name as well. So we'd love to garnish that. I don't think you can move it at this point in the game because it's too late. So having that structure in place is really important to give you back or change again, the dynamic back to your side rather than fully. You know, I've actually never
1: seen something catastrophic happen and we're not going to run that. But what happens if you have to give them like three properties worth of equity, do they force you to sell it? How does that work?
0: Well, it depends on the creditors themselves and how much equity is in the property, what they're going to do. A lot of times what they'll do in, the, in those scenarios is take your policy limits, put a lien against the property so that if you try to sell or refi, they're going to get paid. That's pretty common, what you'll see with, with creditors. But if you have significant equity in the property, a sheriff sale is not out of question. Where they will force you to sell the property. I mean, ideally, you know, a share of sale isn't going to generate the, the amount of money. But if you have three properties, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get paid, depending on what that amount is. You know, several hundred thousand dollars. We'll probably get it out of. Well, the I guess long story dollars.
1: short is, even though if you have an LLC, you should have insurance in case these things happen.
0: Oh, well, you have to have insurance. If you don't. You, the LLC won't protect you. There was an article in the Washington Post and the author was talking about, oh, LLC is not the best for you know, real estate investors because they'll set up an LLC and they'll think, hey, they're not going to have enough insurance, carry enough insurance or not insure the property. You can tell the person that wrote the article, it's not even a real estate investor, doesn't understand how the lending process even works because who determines how much insurance you, you carry on your asset? You or the lender? The lender sets the minimum. If you don't provide yourself enough insurance, they'll step in and gap it, and they'll just charge you the difference. So you have to have insurance for sure on your property, especially if you're financing. You can't right. get around. You know, it. Another
1: thing I was wondering is when you set up these LLCs, you're typically putting in some of your own money into the properties, right? Like you're coming up with 20% down, maybe some extra funds to do repairs. And you mentioned that, especially with LLCs, you don't want to like contaminate it, right? You don't want to like take money from the LLC to pay yourself back. Otherwise, it looks like you're committing funds, but how does that work if you're just paying yourself back, that 20% down or the repairs you spent from your own like, pocket?
0: Well, so if I was going to put money inside of an LLC to, let's say we have to re-roof
1: the house. Or seed house. funding, right?
0: Oh, seed funding, right, or if you wanna buy it. Well, if you're gonna buy it, I would just convert it to debt after the fact, put the money in and then convert it to a loan back to yourself. So then you would just be paying yourself back on that loan the company but the other thing about that is you don't want to undercapitalize it. a creative attorney could bring the argument that is hey this is too thinly capitalized you don't have enough skin in the game is really the argument And they could try to use that as a way to pierce the veil of the llc that's a difficult argument to make so i always say there's a balance you know maybe keep five percent in there and then you could pull the rest back out as a loan so you structure it partially as equity on uh, the majority as debt in order for financing that company but you need to be careful with the underwriter on the deal that you putting this together because if they know that you're loaning money to the llc that may not comport with their lending guidelines because they want to see equity in the deal not debt even though you're on the same side of the coin there so that's something you want to look at as well before you go out and pencil all this into your operating agreement so a lot of times, what we'll do is just recharacterize it after the loan stays. I just give you a
1: basic scenario. So let's say we're buying a one hundred thousand dollar property. I bought it under my personal name, twenty percent down, so it's twenty grand in there, and then eventually I transferred it into the LLC. Now over time, that bank account for the LLC has grown because of the cash flow from the property, and at some point we have twenty thousand dollars in that account for the LLC. If I want to, you know, quote unquote, pay myself back, am I allowed to just take that twenty thousand from my LLC's account and put it back into my account? Is there any kind of special paperwork that I need to do that?
0: Yeah. So when you take that money out, put down in the memo, it's a distribution to you.
1: Okay. That's it. And as a distribution, I guess for tax purposes, do you just say, I'm paying myself back because I'm the one that put it in the first place?
0: Yeah, that kind of gets all worked out in the mix of your capital account with your limited liability company, because that's all going to be tracked via your accounting software, your CPA, your bookkeeper will be tracking that. So you're gonna have basis for all of this. And so all it's going to do is allow you to keep taking that money back out. Now it doesn't mean it's not taxable to you because if you have income inside of that LLC, and this is a question that comes up all the time, probably answer this each week, every week on YouTube. If I take money out of the LLC and I put the money in, it's not taxable. Well, I don't know. Did your LLC generate income? If you generated income, then it is taxable to you. But if you didn't, then it's not. Well, how could I have money inside of my LLC if I don't generate income? you refinance the property, and you get $20,000 in cash on on a cash out refi, then you take that money you distribute to yourself. There's an example, you don't have income, but you're paying yourself back. So you can take money out of an LLC, you can put money into an LLC at any time, there's no restrictions on that. The only time you're gonna have an issue with taking it out is if your LLC is treated as an S Corp or a C Corp, then you really need to consult with someone to make sure there won't be any adverse tax consequences to you. So think of it in terms of, It's an extension of you, and you would never say this to a plaintiff's attorney, you know, it's an extension of your credit book, your checking account. I have all mine linked. So I use Chase and Wells Fargo, and all these accounts are linked together. And whenever I take money out of an LLC and I put it in my personal account, I just log in online, go right to that account, transfer the funds from the LLC account to my personal checking account, and it asks, you know, there's a line there, specify what it was for. I put distribution. The reason I do that is so when my CP or my bookkeeper comes behind me and she's looking at all of my accounts, she's up distribution. That's why Clint took the funds out.
1: So if you write distribution, it's not considered as commingling in that case
0: not considered as commingling, I mean, technically you don't even have to write that, but I just do it because it's good practice to put that in. And whenever I put money into an LLC, so if I took a distribution out of my real estate LLC of 60,000, and then I turn around, I put it into my Wyoming LLC that I call my safe asset LLC, where I keep all my investable cash in my stock account. When I put the money up, I call that a contribution. And what I'm really doing on say Chase, for example, is I transfer funds from real estate LLC to Clint. And then I turn around, I transfer from Clint to Safe LLC that holds my cash. So it takes about three minutes, distribution on one, contribution on the other.
1: Wonderful. Awesome. Well, Clint, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm glad you're able to answer all of my questions. I really appreciate having you here. Are there any last minute things that you would like to let our listeners know before we wrap up our show today?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you want to learn this in more detail, get in more depth about what types of structures you should be utilizing for your, your investing and when it comes to real estate, I teach a class, Tax and Asset Protection for Real Estate Investors. We have one coming up here, in it's going to be in a couple of days, weeks, depending on when this runs. But if they want to register for it, it's a one-day class on Saturday. It's via Zoom. All they would have to do is go to aba.link forward slash R-E-I-2-2 register and you'll come on there you'll hear me myself talking about these techniques in more detail and then in the afternoon my partner Toby Mathis will get on and teach you all the tax side of real estate and how to harvest a ton of deductions and how you know many of these structures that if you set them up the right way and you make the proper tax elections and you use the proper strategies it'll actually pay for the entire setup so it's, it's like a reimbursement just from the IRS alone from doing it the right way and so you, you'll get a wealth of information it's basically you know your three-day class that you went through condensed down into
1: one yeah be prepared to take a lot of notes because and also watch it multiple times because i guarantee you won't get it the very first time but after you do things will click
0: yep the average person watches it comes to the event three times we've tracked nice
1: awesome well Clint, thank you again so much for your time i really appreciate it and hope to see you again soon thanks sean appreciate it i hope you like this episode you can find the show notes with all the links on our site everythingrei.com If you like the podcast, please help us grow by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends to listen as well. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.